Hey everyone, thank you for listening. This is George Khalife, Vice President of US Capital Formation for the Toronto Stock Exchange, as well as TSX Venture. I'm based in Chicago and cover the Midwest and really excited to be welcoming you all to the very first episode of TMX Presents, the podcast. This is where we have conversations with capital markets leaders and CEOs from around the world. Today, I'm joined by Julia Stamberger, the CEO and co-founder of Planting Hope Company, a Chicago plant-based food and beverage business that recently went public on the TSX Venture Exchange under ticker MILK, M-Y-L-K. Planting Hope develops, launches, and scales uniquely innovative plant-based and planet-friendly food and beverage products. Their flagship product is Hope and Sesame Milk, which contains eight grams of complete protein per serving with an excellent source of vitamin D. It's the world's first commercialized sesame milk. Other products include mosaics, which are veggie chips, and veggie shelf-stable dips, as well as right rice, a rice brand that's made straight from vegetables. So aside from being a CEO and co-founder, I want to welcome also a good friend, Julia. Thanks for joining us for today's first episode. Oh, absolutely, George. I'm thrilled to be here, and thank you for the invitation. Of course. What better way to kick it off with another Chicagoan? <laughs> I have to say, to kick things off, in today's world, you know, in the era we live, there's a lot of things happening around innovation. You know, we see the innovation happening within technology, healthcare, there's so much disruption. And yet another really exciting space that is being disrupted is actually the food space and the future of food. And so I really wanted to start by asking you, how did you start the Planting Hope and where did the idea for the Planting Hope company come from? So my co-founders and I, there were four of us when we started who are all still with the company. Back in uh, 2015, 2016, we saw this change happening in the emerging food and beverage industry. Now, all of us had been in emerging food and beverage for long careers. Myself, you know, at this point, I've been here about 20 years. One of my co-founders, James Curley, has been building food and beverage brands on the sales side for over 40 years. And in our capacities, we'd seen so many brands come to market, grow, go to the next level. We'd seen things work, we'd seen things that didn't work, and we'd seen the whole food industry, especially the packaged food industry in the U.S. and North America, change dramatically in a short period of time. Because what was happening is consumers were looking for better nutrition from their food. And then as concerns about climate change and what was driving that came to the forefront, they're also looking for better sustainability and environmental impact. One of our other co-founders, Todd Bamberg, had been the senior global grocery buyer at Whole Foods Market for years. And every Wednesday, you know, every company that wanted to pitch to Whole Foods would come in on the half an hour, show them the latest and greatest things they were bringing to market. So we'd seen a lot happen over the course of our careers, including been involved with brands that were targeted specifically at the more plant-based and planet-friendly segment. And all of a sudden, those brands started to grow very, very quickly. Brands like Tofurky that had been around for 30 years started seeing you know, significant double-digit growth. And the question became, where's that coming from? Is the world becoming vegan? And the answer was, for vegans, sadly, no. <laughs> but there is something that we call the rise of the flexitarian that's happening globally and very, very quickly. And the flexitarian is sometimes called the reducitarian. And here's what it means. People are very widely trading off animal proteins for plant proteins. 
It doesn't mean they're abandoning them altogether. But in many cases, it means they're making choices to rather than eat animal protein as an entree at a meal to replace that with plant protein. And they're doing that more and more and more in their diets. So it's the percentage of animal proteins that people are consuming vis-a-vis -vis the percentage of plant proteins. That's the trade-off. And so that's the flexitarian. They haven't abandoned animal proteins altogether, but they're adopting more plant-based proteins into their diet. Now, why is this? Number one, a big concern around nutrition. Better nutrition, better health through plant-based eating. And that's through, you know, reducing things like saturated fats through to other immunity support issues that have especially been on the rise due to COVID and other health concerns. Another one is climate change and the realization that animal proteins take so much more support from a feeding and water usage and everything else involved in cultivating and growing these. Third is animal welfare and concerns about the treatment of animal. You combine all of these and you see a seismic shift in double digits on key categories with people moving in this direction. And as the food technology and the innovation becomes better, the products are becoming you know, more acceptable, more delicious. At the end of the day, products have to be delicious. But here's why we started the Planning Hope Company. We saw tremendous gulfs between what people were looking for from their plant-based trade-offs and what was available in the marketplace. For instance, if you look at plant-based milk, that category has been exploding over the last 20 years. Literally double-digit growth year over year in the US, in Canada, and across the globe. In fact, in many parts of the world is growing even faster. A lot of reasons for this. Everything that I mentioned, as well as the fact that 70% of the world is lactose intolerant. So looking for another alternative, a plant-based source of milk is important. So here's what we found, though, when we looked at those categories. People were leaving things like plant-based milk that are extremely nutritious, but have issues with sustainability and water usage. And they're going to products like almond milk, which is 60% of the category. Well, dairy milk has eight grams of complete protein that contains all nine of the essential amino acids that people need to get from food and their bodies can't make. Almond milk contains one gram of incomplete protein. It's not a good trade-off. And almonds are extremely sustainable. They require a lot of water to grow. And the farming of almonds has a significant impact on commercial bee populations, killing off about 30% a year in the pollination cycle. So we looked at category after category and found that in key, really important pantry staple categories, the trade-offs that consumers were getting did not match their need states. And we decided to start the Planning Hope Company specifically to fill in those gaps with more nutritious, more sustainable, and more delicious solutions in the areas that would make the biggest impact. Yeah, I mean, I think I joked with you when we first connected and chatted that you know, as a Canadian slash Middle Easterner, when I saw the, the sesame based product, I was, you know, inside I was a little bit happy. I'm like, it's nice to finally see sesame being used in different areas, one being milk, but it's, it was surprising to see that it wasn't commercialized, you know, because of course we were used to almond, oat came to market quite recently, but sesame based milk seemed to have, you know, the right nutritious profile. But to your point, also the sustainability factor, which also in today's environment, given the rise in popularity of ESG, reasonably so, I think gave you kind of that nice full circle, well-balanced story. 
The trick is, is that sesame milk has existed as something you can make at home for a long time. My business partner, James, mm -hmm. been in this industry for 40 plus years, you know, started life as a you know, hippie in the 70s, and he would make sesame milk at home. The challenge is that sesame as a crop, as pervasive and well-loved as it is worldwide and is valued for all of its properties, is highly under-commercialized in terms of its nutritious properties. Everybody knows what sesame is. But if you think about it, how many nutritious foodstuffs are made with sesame? So one of the biggest uses of sesame is expressing the seeds for sesame oil. So you crush the seeds, express the oil, and then there's this pulp remaining. Well, the sesame seed itself is packed with nutrition, and a lot of that nutrition is in the outer hull. The sesame seeds that you eat on top of a hamburger bun have had that hull removed and been roasted. They taste very sweet. The actual sesame seed, one of the things that makes it a great crop is it's pest resistant naturally. There's a bitter acid in that hull, and that makes pests not want to eat it, and that means you don't have to use you know, a lot of pesticides on the crops, which is great. But when you crush those hulls or you eat that sesame seed with the hull on it, it's very bitter. So George, have you ever had like straight tahini? Oh no, a nice falafel sandwich. Exactly. And it's delicious, but it's not entirely sweet. There's a bitter note associated with it. And that's because tahini is effectively crushed sesame seeds. Right. All right. So, you know, if you're trying to make a milk with it at home, sesame has such a high oil content that you can make it, but it only lasts in the fridge for a day or two because that oil will go rancid. And it doesn't look or feel like what you would expect from dairy milk. It's a different product. The nutrition, though, is so great. And the sustainability is so great. You know, we looked at sesame and said, can we commercialize a milk? Because this would provide an alternative, if we can get it there, to dairy milk that's much more comparable nutritionally with much more sustainability. The trick was, how do you do that? and provide all of that nutrition. What material do you start with? Because sesame is so full of oil. And unsweetened is the biggest category in the non-dairy milk category. How do you create an unsweetened product and deal with the bitterness that people don't necessarily associate with sesame, but is a reality of that seed? So it took us five years of food and beverage R&D with some of the top food and beverage formulators and flavors in the world. And by the way, flavors and food and beverage, that's not an easy degree. That's like a six-year degree and an apprenticeship. Like people who do this are immensely skilled at the food science. And there's more and more technology that's available every day. And what we were able to do is, first of all, we started with effectively the pulp remaining after the sesame oil was expressed, because that's where all the nutrition is. But also, because the primary crop is sesame oil, we were able to take a byproduct, effectively, of that oil expression, which was traditionally used for animal feed, and repurpose it for human nutrition. We would consider it an upcycled product from that perspective, which is something you've probably been seeing more and more of in snacks and other things at places like Whole Foods. I hope for everyone listening, just on that, the how difficult to your point and I'll, I'll let you continue to elaborate but when we first had lunch i think that was my personal curiosity right is how difficult of a task it actually is to make this whole operation happen you know from start to finish but also factor in things like taste it's definitely some needed context to clarify that you know a lot goes into making milk and alternative products that are in the plant-based space 
Absolutely. And what I'm describing is only kind of the tip of the iceberg. So to get away from the bitterness without just adding sugar, which you can't in an unsweetened keto-friendly product, we actually developed some bitter blocker technology that's organic compliant. It's ingredients, but they just float the bitter note over the tongue so you don't absorb it. So there are things like that that we couldn't have probably done 20 years ago, but are ideal and the time is right now. But the next piece is processing. We use a combination of sesame plus pea or sesame plus chickpea, depending on the product, to complete that amino acid chain and deliver a good source of protein. But the specific strain of yellow pea that you use is very specific. There may be you know, 30 types out there, only a couple of them are gonna give you the taste and the dissolve and process the way that you want. And if you don't get it right and absolutely right, you can end up with something that's chalky or bitter or all of these other factors. So literally five years of development to get the product that we have today, which we're proud to say, is an excellent one-to-one alternative in terms of taste, flavor, application, and nutrition to dairy milk. It does have a slight sesame taste, which is fun and complimentary and works really well in things like tea and coffee. But George, it took a long time to get there. Definitely a long road, but an exciting one, right? And, And you're doing something different in the industry. So Julia, we talked about the origination, which I really wanted people to hear. I mean, it was exciting for me, again, when we were having lunch, but I'm like, we, got, we have to hit this home again. <laughs> so now that we have the origination underway, what was the decision like for you? Because as a company in an exciting space, not only is it an exciting space, but one that's also up and coming, there's a lot of potential. You spoke about some of the growth metrics around plant-based milk, among others. What was it like for you? you know, as the CEO and a co-founder of this business, when you're looking at the different alternatives for raising capital, public capital is obviously one of those options, and it's the one that you eventually undertook. But before that, of course, you were looking at different private alternatives. Curious if we can kind of get into your mindset at that time, as you were looking at, at alternatives, which one made the most sense and really why? Yeah, that's an excellent question because I've raised capital, you know, for private companies for, again, over 20 years. And starting with early stage technology companies, then moving to food companies, branded food companies, etc. All of them startups that, you know, I started myself and principally, by the way, in Chicago. Chicago, the heart of the Midwest, has not traditionally been the most risk-forward market to raise capital. Uh, It's more conservative especially with private capital and capital from individuals and family offices. And to raise early stage startup money, typically individuals and family offices are the right play. Until you get, you know, effectively an MVP or a certain level of revenue that you can go to the next level. With the Planning Hope Company, one of the things we were trying to do is to not repeat former mistakes. One of the things that we've seen and experienced directly particularly in the food and beverage segment, is that there have been so many strategic exits in this space where people have started companies that were able to innovate faster than the larger CPG companies and attract a lot of consumers, take market share. And then at a certain time where they'd kind of proven out their ACV, maybe north of 20 million, a strategic buyer like a, you know, Kellogg's or a Mondelez or a Kraft or a ConAgra would come in and acquire that company, typically for a significant multiple of revenue. 
And what that meant is that the industry attracted a lot of venture capital and private equity. Well, a venture capitalist is a lot like a, you know, old school record producer. So you get a label and what you do is you go out and you sign 10 bands and you know that, you know, eight of them aren't going to make it. One of them may be chart a couple of hits and then maybe one of them will be, you know, an absolute chart topper and a long-term revenue play. It's not that different with a venture capitalist. They get a fund together. They've got their limited partners. They've sold them on a mandate. And then they go invest that capital in a series of companies and see what works and what doesn't. And if it works, you know, they may push for an early exit to fund their next portfolio or something else. Your interests as a founder and as a company are not necessarily the same interests of those of a venture capitalist. You know, you have different objectives. And when those diverge, it can be fatal for the company. And we've seen that happen before. Another thing about venture capital is the obvious play in the private markets is that venture capitalists sell their LPs on a specific mandate. And that mandate is, hey, we're going to go invest this fund in plant-based beverages. Mm -hmm. Or, you know, we've got this other philosophy. We're selling you on it, and that's what we're going to do. Fine and fair. But one thing we knew as operators very intimately is that, especially at the early stages of the brand, you need to keep your overhead lean. And if you can split it across multiple brands effectively, portfolio strategy that targets the same end consumer, which is what we developed with the Planning Hope Company, allows you to leverage quite a few efficiencies and economies of scale across those brands. And that's very important. However, venture capitalists would be interested in like, just the hope and sesame. Well, we're not just hope and sesame. We're hope and sesame. We're mosaics. You know, we're vegicopia. We're a diversified portfolio that has a lot more clout with brokers and other partners because we're bringing more to the table. And we also have different development arcs. So there wasn't great alignment with the venture capital space. And there are other issues that we saw, such as board control and management. Mm. So when you take a venture capital investment, you often have at least two you know, members of a five-member board who represent the interests of the investors. From a diversity standpoint, those people typically look like the network or the makeup of that venture capital firm, and those are predominantly white men. A good proportion of the interest at the table and possibly some of your preferred equity structure is in the hands of people who may have divergent interests from the rest of your shareholder base. All of this is to say it's a tricky proposition and not necessarily a great one for the company at the end of the day in terms of building long-term value. But that was, for a very long time, the only proposition. There weren't a lot of other options. So when we were introduced to the idea of the Canadian junior markets as an option for us, it aligned particularly well with our interest and strategy. The public markets are more friendly towards a diversified portfolio. In fact, one of the things you're encouraged to do is to leverage your equity and capital to make uh, strategic acquisitions. We've only been public since November 18th. We completed our first acquisition on January 14th of a very accretive company that fit right into our portfolio. And we were able to look at it and say, you know, this company has been a standalone company to date. We can strip out a lot of the duplicative overhead and bring that into our portfolio in a way that makes sense. We were able to build a completely independent board that represented the interests of the shareholders. There were a lot of pieces that were huge opportunities from a public company standpoint that were very different from the private markets. And that was a lot of our decision. 
it's interesting to hear your background. And part of the reason I wanted to ask it is because you have gone through the different cycles and the different options of raising capital, be it private, and then now obviously the public side. And and often interesting to hear a CEO's perspective as they're going through the process. You mentioned, of course, the recent acquisition, which given the month and a half, that there's a short time window as a public company to to make that acquisition. So it was exciting news to see. That was, of course, Right Rice, the vegetable-based rice brand that we talked about in, in the intro. That was, a, I believe, a $7 million offering. When you went public, you raised $10.35 million Canadian. And I'm going to call myself out on this. I used to always, when I f- first started my career, I would reference the public markets as sort of the, the Super Bowl, you know, the Emmy. And now that I look back on it, it was almost like the finishing line. Whereas for a lot of companies, much like yourself, it really is the starting line. You know, it seems like it's the beginning chapter of what hopefully will become an exciting growth story. So you've highlighted the acquisition, of course. No need to be specific on this, but just curious how you think about growth now as a public company listed on the TSX Venture after having done the acquisition of Right Rice. What excites you the most now being a listed company that you still really want to tackle? Well, being a listed company, it does so much for us. But two things that it does is it enables us to access public market capital when we see a strategic opportunity that makes a lot of sense and find that there is an opportunity for us to go after, much as we did with Right Rice. We have a very deep network in this industry, having been around for so long and worked across so many pieces of it. And we are seeing deal flow constantly. That's something we didn't really expect is how many interesting opportunities would be presented. But the most important part is having the fuel to be able to take our brands to the next level. With our Hope and Sesame Barista Blend, that is a specific sesame milk that's developed just for baristas. And why would you need a specific plant milk for baristas? Plant milks, no matter how close they are to dairy milk, they have a different chemical structure and makeup than dairy milks. So to get them to froth and foam and steam in similar fashions, you need to add some additional buffers and tweaks and things to make them perform that way. Well, we first previewed barista milk at Coffee Fest in 2020, right before the world crashed. March 8th, 9th, and 10th in New York at Coffee Fest. We're going back to Coffee Fest this year with a completely refined and finished and ready to roll product that we just launched a week ago. And we truly believe is going to be the next thing to hit the barista market in a big way since oat milk. With accessing capital on the public markets, we're able to put the distribution and the awareness and the fuel under our brands to be able to build global world-class brands rather than being as constrained by capital needs as you would be in a venture situation or another situation. The second big piece is all of our retail buyers are consumers. You know, so we're in this interesting position where, you know, we're not a mining company. Every one of our retail investors can also be a consumer and can also be an advocate for the product. For a consumer brand, especially a junior one, it's a very interesting position to be in because all of the marketing we do around the company is also marketing for the products. And all the marketing we do around the products is also an introduction to the company. 
So for consumer products, especially at an early stage, it makes a lot more time, it makes a lot more sense for us to invest our time and effort into graduating to the junior markets than it does going on Shark Tank <laughs> and hoping that people will, you know, see us and eventually go and buy our product. One thing I want to point out, which you did, which I found really interesting, was in the rebrand of Hope and Sesame, you actually also added a ticker. And so back to that conversation, you know, around being a consumer product, one of the, the cool things about it is me as a consumer, but also, let's say, as an investor, it's nice to align with the products that you see, that you taste, that you use on a daily. And if you're a fan, this gives you the ability to partake in the company's growth of a product or service that you genuinely care about and stand for. So I thought that was really interesting, the fact that you have TSXV milk on the back of Hope and Sesame Milk. Just wanted to shout that out. We do. And as we update our packaging and film and things and incorporate right rice, we'll actually be putting it on all of our packaging. We want to draw that direct connection for consumers. And yes, it's an exciting thing to do to be able to participate with the brands that you believe in. And we're seeing a lot of younger investors look to kind of vote with their dollars. You know, we have three core missions of the Planning Hope Company. The first is more nutrition. The second is more sustainability. The third is more representation. And being in a position of corporate responsibility with a high profile, when we decided to go public, we also decided to remake our board of directors to look like our core customer. Our core customer for the adoption of plant-based products into the home is a young woman, period. 90% of the products that are brought into the home that are new plant-based products are done by women. And it starts as young as 16 with kids living at home influencing their parents up to any age. But it is a woman who's bringing them into the home. And they are the ones that introduce others to the product and are the core influencers. So our thought process was, why don't we look like her? Why doesn't our board represent that diversity? It's no accident, for instance, that when we launched our barista milk, we created a rainbow package around that. Diversity is very important to our core consumer base. And we want to embody that and represent that. So again, when it comes back to what's meaningful for our consumer, there is a full panoply of things that are our mission and our beliefs that consumers can engage in further by also participating in the stock and the ownership. Julia, I have to tell you, I don't know if it's the sesame milk or uh, the magic in those ingredients, but I feel like you're reading my mind because every time I have a, a question coming up, you're, you're hitting it, which, <laughs> which I'm loving as a moderator. I did want to touch on that last part that you're talking about Something so integral to Planting Hope stories, as you mentioned, it's not just the sustainability, of course, that is a big factor, but an important pillar is representation. And when Planting Hope went public, of course, it did so under the construction of an all-women management as well as board of directors. And if you look at today's landscape, that means Planting Hope is one of few issuers with that kind of structure on the public markets. Hopefully when we air this episode, it will be the week of Women's International Day, which we're really, really excited about. And one thing I did want to touch on is the fact that if you look at this past year, we saw a record-breaking 10-plus female-led IPOs in the U.S., and you had some big names from Bumble, Vimeo, Nubank, to The Honest Company from Jessica Alba, Rent the Runway. It was really exciting to see Planting Hope as part of that global network. And my question to you then, in terms of the overall story, the big central themes, can you talk through why having 
and all women management and BOD, why that was so important to you, but also why furthering diversity to be more specific within capital markets and entrepreneurship is so important. So someone has to make the first move, George, and normalize something. Yeah, I was asked the other day on an interview if the position shouldn't be that you couldn't IPO without a woman on the board, and should that be a rule going forward? I don't think that's the right approach. The right approach, when we're dealing with financial markets, is to demonstrate that having diverse leadership makes financial sense in terms of the bottom line and in terms of delivery to the stakeholders and investors. And it's hard to demonstrate that when the capital markets are so overwhelmingly controlled by white men, period. One of the things that we've seen happen over and over again in the food and beverage industry is that, you know, companies will frequently be started by women. At least 50% of the startups are women-led. By the time you get through a couple of rounds of venture capital, there are very few women left at the helm. The founder often gets pushed out in terms of an experienced, quote-unquote, operator. The board composition, you know, is predominantly male. And the representation in terms of ethnic diversity also falls by the wayside. So I can't change the makeup of the capital markets. But what I can do is consciously demonstrate that an all-women C-suite and an all-women board of directors can be a thing. There's no reason why it shouldn't. And now our job is to demonstrate that that composition delivers well financially for investors. And so we have an important road ahead of us. If we can demonstrate that, then we open the door for more folks to come to the market with women and diverse representation on their boards because it will have a better chance of doing well financially. And that, to me, is more powerful than legislating tokenism and putting somebody in a position where they're just there because they're a woman, and that's isolating and can not be effective at the end of the day. Unless we take that stand, we're not going to be able to demonstrate that. And the more that we normalize that, the more that investors will back companies that look and feel that way. Yeah, and I did want to share one stat that actually my colleague and counterpart in California, Delilah Pano, put together. This was a POV that, that was published during Women's History Month, and the title is Women Making History in the Public Markets. And, you know, one of the anecdotes she shared in that article, which I also actually brought up during Planting Hope's Market Open, I don't know if you remember this, but it was uh, the fact that the average 2020 return for TSX women-led companies was roughly 70% compared to the S&P TSX Composite Index, which was a return of 19% in 2020. On TSX Venture, women-led companies had an average return of 76%, compared to the one-year return of the S&P TSX Venture Composite of 52%. So that illustrates what happens when there is proper representation. And I just wanted to add that anecdote because obviously a very compelling stat. Well, and what's interesting is, you know, still how underrepresented women are and what an opportunity there is even on the TSXV and the TSX. Mm -hmm. IR Labs, the investor relations group, who is our investor relations group, together with Women Get On Board in Canada, recently published a study where they looked at those metrics. And I'm not going to quote them off the cuff because I don't have them memorized. But let's just say that the percentage of companies with even one woman on the board was shockingly low for 2022. 
And the number of companies with a woman chair or larger representation was also, again, amazingly low. And change happens, you know, one step at a time. One of the things that I've heard from several young women who have sent me, you know, direct emails through LinkedIn or another mechanism is we see a path now. Thank you for demonstrating mm-hmm. this can be done because, you know, that looks like me. That could be me. I believe that could be me. And until being on a board or running a successful company or going public as a CEO or a founder becomes part of the evoke set of what somebody can dream and do. It doesn't become something that they can aspire to if it's never part of their vision. And if they know this can be done, just like in any other area we've made advances over the last 100 or 200 years when it comes to representation and dreams and goals and roles and what people can and can't do, having a role model or having something that really exists that you can then make part of your own vision makes all the difference. 100%. And I want to echo that. Thank you, of course, for not only leading the way, but paving the way. And quick fun fact, I thought I'd bring this up, is part of what makes the name Hope and Sesame so compelling to the overall story, of course, is that word hope is not just about being planet friendly, which is a sustainable pillar, but of course, is giving aspiring women founders, entrepreneurs, and hopefully future capital markets leaders that same hope that you're creating by leading that charge. So that's where that thank you comes from, of course, from our side. I did want to leave you with with one more. This is a bit of a rapid fire, but let's see what happens with this. We'll have some fun with it. And please be as honest as possible or as constructive as possible, maybe. But Julia, what surprised you the most about going public? I'm going to give you two things, George. One was the immense quality of the partners and team we were able to build around us. And I'm being completely honest here. You know me. I don't pull punches. The TSXV and the TSX have been enormously welcoming and helpful. We have found an amazing network of supportive, smart experts to help us in Canada across the board. And just the quality of the team that we've been able to build to take this, you know, to the next level has been a very positive surprise overall. And then secondly, I would say it's the amount of interest that we've received from other food and beverage brands who have struggled with venture capital and the other things that are out there in wanting to be part of what we're doing. And we will not make acquisitions that don't make a thousand percent success and aren't accretive and things for us, but there is a huge demand for other paths to capital and other paths to being able to build companies that is not currently filled, particularly in the U.S. market from the private markets. Wonderful. I love that. We're definitely appreciative equally of this partnership and look forward to seeing what's next. But with that, I will have to say the first episode is now in the books, although I can, you know, we can probably muster like a three hour conversation (laughs) easily. So I just wanted to say that, but thank you all for listening. If you've made it this far, this is TMX Presents, the podcast. Again, this is our very, very first episode. A big thank you to Julia and the Planting Hope team for joining us. For more information, visit us at us.tsx.com. And if you want more insights on capital markets, we put out really good content, which you can find at tmx.com forward slash POV. With that, thanks, Julia, again, and for you all listening.